I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm going to live in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. Good morning to you, my friends. It's good to be with you this morning. I'm going to invite you to open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 26. And then we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 25. This will be uh, where we take a bit more of a, a deep dive today. Now, as we have said, and we've discovered over the last several weeks, the book of Philippians uh, invites us to put on what Paul refers to as the phroneo of Jesus. He says, put on the phroneo of Jesus. Now, phroneo is this Greek word that's translated as our will. Um, it has to do with how we go about making conscious decisions. So when Paul says, put on the phroneo of Jesus, we, we've been saying that means put on the thinking, the acting, and the feelings of Jesus. So as you're learning how to walk in the way of Jesus, these are the kinds of things to put on. We look at Jesus, how he feels, how he acts, what he thinks, and we do our absolute best to put those things into practice. We've also said over the last several weeks that there's a particular um, pattern, a Christ pattern, that we see throughout Paul's letters and in primarily in the book of Philippians. And that pattern is this, that death gives way to life. That's part of what it means to walk with Jesus, that death always gives way to life. And because of that, we can say that even in this, even what, what seems like destruction, what seems like the end, what seems like it's over, we can firmly situate and root ourselves in the reality that resurrection is always coming. We've also said that there are essentially two different positions that you can take on in life, two different postures. There's the yes position to life and the no position to life. The yes position is about release and the no position has to do with resistance. The yes position leans towards change. There's an openness, a curiosity. It's a life full of wonder and exploration that when certain things are challenged inside of ourselves, our first reaction is not to defend it or push it away, but it's to open ourselves up to the possibility that we might be wrong. The, the no position has to do with resistance. It's closed, it's adverse to change. Uh, when it hears something that may contradict something inside, its first reaction is like, no, this can't be. I, I don't want anything to do with this. I would refer to this no position as a half-heartedness. Now, to explain this half-heartedness, I want to look at a dialogue happening between Jesus and one of his closest friends. This is found in Matthew chapter 16 and then verse 21 through 25. Prior to that, just a few verses earlier, Jesus had asked Peter a specific question. 
there's all this uh, chatter going on about who Jesus is. People have their opinions and speculations about who Jesus is. And Jesus wants to know, Peter, what do, you, what do you think? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers the question as a student would to a rabbi. Well, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, I'm wondering if Peter is thinking inside of himself, man, I, got, I think I got that one right. Yeah, I'm, I'm that good student. I think I answered that one correctly. Now, we as the reader, as, as Christians, we look at this text and we say, yeah, that, that's the correct answer. You answered that one well. Good job, Peter. So Peter might have what we would refer to as right beliefs. But what happens when our right beliefs don't necessarily fully align with God's version of right beliefs? God's reality versus our own. It's like you have a version of it operating down in your belief system headquarters and those right beliefs are working for you. So what do you do when they're working for you and then you find one day that they no longer work for you? What do you do? Has that ever happened to you before? And I'm talking about the foundational kinds of beliefs the ones that are at your core where you are absolutely convinced that you're right, at least about these certain kinds of things when it comes to God. Or you're absolutely right that this is how you read the Bible or this version of the Bible or this particular text. I mean, it says it so clear. I mean, how could anyone read it any differently? When you're challenged or you realize, uh, my so-called right belief isn't in alignment with God's reality. How do you react to that? How do you respond? Do you respond with that yes position to life and all that comes your way? Openness, wonder, curiosity, I might be wrong. Huh, let's explore that. Or is it that no position where you clinch on even tighter because the very thought of letting that precious belief go well, if I do that, then what? Well, let's explore Peter's right beliefs for a moment by looking at verses 21 through 25. I'm going to start reading verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began rebuking him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Hmm. Peter just finished making a public proclamation, a confession of faith, like boldly declaring his right beliefs. And now Jesus is calling him Satan. I mean, that's quite a shift, and that is some strong language. 
I mean, what does that, what does that do to your confidence level, right? How would you react if Jesus turned to you and referred to you as Satan? As soon as Peter's right beliefs are challenged, it's like, wait a minute, what, what you're saying right now doesn't align with my belief system headquarters. It's like the message goes in and it's like, no, 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 no. This is not how this is supposed to go. This isn't what I sign up for. And then he pulls Jesus aside and he begins to rebuke him. I mean, like, who does that? What, what in the world is going on here? Well, Peter thinks that Jesus is the Messiah. And when Jesus comes to Peter and says, Peter, come and follow me. Peter's like, all right, I've heard about you. There's been lots of chit chat about you and even some speculation that you might be the long awaited Messiah that we've been waiting for. So Peter takes on, initially he takes on the yes position as long as he was signing up for a revolution. So there's that, there's that, uh, that tension, that narrative, I think that operates in all of us, if we're honest. And that narrative, that, that word, that phrase that keeps coming up in me is, I'm all in as long as. And I'm wondering, I'm asking myself the question, where is that operating inside of me? I'm all in with Jesus as long as. And that sounds like a conditional agreement. And I'm wondering, are, are you aware of the conditional agreements that you've made with God in your negotiation room? I'm all in. Yeah, I, I said, I'll say yes to whatever you ask me to do as long as this. Now, Peter had this pesky little thing called expectations. And you might have heard of these before. Expectations are everything, and they operate at, at different degrees inside of all of us. C.S. Lewis has this great quote about expectations in his book, God in the Dock. Listen to this. If you think of the world as a place intended simply for our happiness, you find it quite intolerable. Think of it as a place of training and correction, and it's not so bad. That, like, that right there says it all expectations are everything. Training and correction. If you think of it as training and correction, it's not really that bad. And, and that got me thinking, like, what if, what if that was like the driving narrative that we, we lived with when we would come together and study and learn and grow and sing and worship? What if our primary uh, driving reason for coming together was for training and correction? Like I'm coming, I'm coming to learn. I'm coming with a yes position. I'm, I'm opening myself up to the remote possibility that I might be wrong. As opposed to like, wait a minute, I'm, I'm coming here to be entertained. I'm, I'm coming here um, not to change. I'm coming for some relief. So you're asking me to change? Like, I, I don't know if I'm all in for that. And I, I'm asking myself and I'm asking all of us, are, are you aware of the little subtitle operating down in your belief system headquarters that says, I'm all in as long as. Peter's expectations were wrapped up in his firm conviction, his firm beliefs about what the Messiah is going to do when he arrives on the scene. And this belief about the Messiah was deeply embedded within the Jewish psyche and it had been passed on from generation to generation. So Peter grew up 
being given a set of expectations and beliefs around who the Messiah was going to be and, and what the Messiah was going to do. Now, a little context here that may help us um, have a deeper understanding of what's going on inside of Peter. The Jewish people have gone from one oppressive superpower to another. And all throughout Israel's history, when, when you read God's bigger story, you see this pattern coming and going. There's an oppressive superpower, and then they come out, and then they go back into another one, and then they come out for a time of peace, and then they find themselves again in the same pattern. And at this particular time in history, they're under the oppressive regime of Rome. And what kept them going was the future hope that one day God is going to send us a deliverer. He's going to come. And this messianic deliverer would lead them to victory over the oppressive regime that was holding them down. And the only logical conclusion was is that this was going to be done through a great battle. And because God was on their side, there would be victory. God was going to lead them to victory because God is on our side. Now, as I stated earlier, at this time in Israel's history, Rome is ruling and reigning. And Rome is ruled and reigned by the Caesars and the emperors who saw themselves as gods. They saw themselves as divine and, and the people saw them as divine. These these emperors, these gods, were leading Rome to greater degrees of peace and prosperity, but they were doing it through coercive force. So through a, a strong military presence, peace was coming into the world. Now, as a Jewish people, you would hold on to a core belief that your God is bigger than all the other gods. You see this kind of writing throughout the Old Testament. Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. Our God is higher than all the other gods. This is what your book continues to declare over and over again. And this gets seeped into your psyche, into your belief system. But here's the problem. If that's true, and if God is stronger than all the other gods, why are we being oppressed? Why are we the ones who are getting pushed down and defeated? And along comes Jesus. He arrives on the scene. And now finally, finally, it's time to make Israel great again. And this Jesus, well, he's our guy. And he's going to lead the charge. And this guy is going to be on our side because this is God's guy. Peter, who do you say that I am? You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus, I think it's great that you keep talking about peace and forgiveness. Those are, those are good things that all of us should be practicing to a degree, of course. And you keep healing marginalized people. And it, and it seems like you're spending a great deal of time with peasants and outsiders. And man, that, that whole walking on water thing, that was amazing. That was super cool. And you keep giving it to the religious authorities, and, I, and we kind of like that, that you, you flip the tables over and you're turning systems upside down. We like all that. But, but when are we going to go into Rome and kick them out of power? Hey, I have an idea. 
Let's make Israel great again. What happens when Jesus' idea of great again doesn't align with our idea of great again? And is that really Jesus' goal to make things great? Doesn't seem to me like Jesus is interested in power, at least not the kind of power where his people are on top and others are below. He's not interested in the kind of power that continues to oppress people, even at systemic levels. And here's Jesus. And we look at his posture and he's got to get to Jerusalem. And Peter might be thinking, Jerusalem? Yeah, that's, that's the Mecca. We, that's exactly where it's got to go down. But when Jesus begins to reveal more and more his pattern, the invitation to come and follow him, to, to put on the thinking and the actions and the feelings of Jesus. And he says things like, well, I've got to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and I have to die, but then I will rise on the third day. And what is Peter's resolve? No, no, I'm not, that's not what I signed up for. I, I'm not going to let that happen. Listen very carefully. Peter's right beliefs are deeply rooted in his messianic expectations. But what happens when your deeply rooted messianic expectations don't align with Jesus? The moment Jesus reveals his mission and you get to the deeper levels of why he came and what he came to do, it's like Peter's core beliefs are now exposed. And as soon as they're exposed, Peter's initial reaction is like, I'm out. This is like, I'm all in as long as, but if this is what it is, then I'm out. Now let's step back for a moment. I've discovered, and painfully so, that you can find out a great deal about yourself and about the the belief system, headquarters system that's operating inside of you, that when something um, doesn't line up with your perception of reality. It's very jarring. It's, it's very difficult. You think God is this way, and then you find out he's not that way. And you're like, oh, it doesn't, that doesn't feel good. Have you, have you had this experience yet? Where your core beliefs, and I'm not, I'm not talking about just some little small beliefs. I'm talking about the core stuff where you know, hey, I'll never, I'll never not believe this something deeply sacred to you and something deeply sacred to you where you've built your whole life on it is challenged. And you know that there's a, there's an inkling inside of you, you know, I'm, I'm probably wrong on this and I, I probably need to change. Isn't there that part of you that says, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that. Isn't there that part of you that just says, no, (laughs) because if I, if I let that go, uh, then there's other things I got to let go and I'm not, and I'm not going there. But what happens when you say yes to that challenge? When, when you say yes and you open yourself up and then you invite the Holy Spirit to move into those deeper areas of your headquarters, into those back rooms, the places that are most sacred, and you begin to discover the beauty of surrender and opening yourself up. And now you find yourself deconstructing that core belief. It's, it's like it's getting pulled apart because it doesn't work anymore and you know it and you find yourself going, wait, if this goes, what else needs to go? 
if if this is off, what else do I need to do? Now we're getting somewhere. And for many of us, it's like we would rather just stay secure. We want to lock ourselves and remain in certainty, even if it's dysfunctional. It's like, well, at least I know about my dysfunction and it works for me. I remember the first time my eschatology was challenged, my, my ideas about what would happen in the end of time. And I remember when I was challenged, confronted with a different angle about the book of Revelation that I had never seen before. And it was super scary at first because it challenged what I was taught for the majority of my life. And it was challenged by good-hearted, spirit-filled people. And even on the other side of it, the stuff that I had been taught was given to me by these good-hearted, spirit-filled people. And I remember when I, when I began to gain a, a deeper understanding of the reality that Jesus was actually a first-century Jew and that my 21st century perspective, especially my 21st westernized Christianity um, perspective, didn't seem to line up with the first century perspective. And it felt like, oh my gosh, there's more that's being deconstructed here. And it's like my, my belief headquarters were going nuts. It's like smoke was coming out of the machine. It was scary. And many times my first reaction to these challenges was no, this no. This doesn't align with my reality. And yet God kept sending me men and women full of the Holy Spirit, challenging me, loving me, walking with me, and then helping me to reconstruct the pathway to wholeness. And there were times when I felt like I was losing my faith, but I I wasn't losing my faith. I was rediscovering things that I had never seen before. I was dying and resurrecting, and that's painful. I was discovering that there was still a great deal of that that no position operating in me, that half-heartedness where I wasn't fully in, that, that narrative was, I'm all in as long as. And now, even, even now at my age and where I find myself now, I, I, I actually have more questions than I do answers. But, but I also want to say that that resurrection is more foundational in my life than ever. And I look back and I think, man, if I, if I hadn't gone through a lot of that deconstruction, then, then the reality of Jesus and his resurrection wouldn't take on these new, uh, it's like they've, they've, just be, they've gone from one dimension to like a three-dimensional reality. Now, back to Peter for a moment, because this is, this is interesting. Let's, let's dive in a little bit deeper. Check out Jesus' response to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have the mind and the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, what is Jesus going after here? Is it possible that Jesus is rising up against half-heartedness? Notice what Jesus says to half-heartedness. You do not have the mind, the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Could we all take some inventory for a moment and think about the mind and the concerns 
of God. Do we have the courage to ask ourselves, are my thoughts, my actions, my feelings, my emotions rooted in human concerns primarily? And then also, how do we go about discovering the mind, the concerns of God? I mean, how can we really know? I would say this, we look at Jesus. First and foremost, we look at Jesus and we stay there. And we don't divert from that. We look right into the heart of Jesus and we ask ourselves the questions. What is Jesus doing? What is, what, how, how is Jesus handling this situation? Who is Jesus hanging out with? What kinds of people has he chosen to surround himself with? What does he value? What does he challenge? What is he against? What is he for? And this whole death leads to life thing. I mean, that's the pattern that we see in Jesus. And we as followers of Jesus, it's like, I'm not going to resist that. If that's the pattern, if that's, if that's the pathway to more life, I want more of that. I, I want more traction in that reality that the pathway to more life, abundant life, is death. And that's the only way that we get there. And then in verse 21, Jesus says, listen, I'm, I'm about to reveal to all of you what this whole thing is about. I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. And in the gospel of Luke, uh, Luke uses the language that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is not just the Mecca. It's the place that leads to suffering, death, but then ultimately through that, resurrection comes. So Jesus sets his face in a particular direction and that direction leads to resurrection, but first death and suffering because it's unavoidable. Set your face in the direction of Jesus. That's the yes position to all of life, even the hardest parts, the training and the correction, living with an openness and a wonder of like, oh, I need to change, challenge me. Holy Spirit, move into the deeper rooms of my belief system and start deconstructing and pulling it apart so that I can open myself up to deeper understandings of who you are and what your idea of great really is. So we could say this, I think, get behind me, no position to life. Get behind me anything that opposes what God is up to in the world. And then in verse 24, Jesus reveals more of his pattern, more of what is real, more revealing more of what God's concerns actually are. And he says, listen, if you want this, if, if you're all in, Without the conditional agreement attached to it, I'm all in as long as. Let's leave that tag off. If you want this, if you want to put on Christ, thinking, acting, and feelings of Jesus, deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. And if you keep wanting to clench and hold and grip on to your right beliefs, you're going to lose your life. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will actually find it. I mean, that's an invitation into deeper joy, deeper trust, and deeper faith. And Jesus is like, listen, I'm not, I'm not interested in playing it safe. I, I keep turning things upside down, flipping entire systems that are oppressing people up on its head. 
And Jesus keeps asking the question, and this is the question that I think we always have to keep right in front of us, is what makes you think the world is the way you see it? And then he keeps revealing over and over again, this is what the kingdom of God is like. If you want to be under the rule and reign of God, here's what it looks like. And here's the kinds of people who are actually going to be participating in the kingdom of God, and it's rarely what you think. And I see this same resolve in Paul. This same resolve, here he is in a Roman prison, and his resolve is rooted in resurrection. And in the verses that we read today, it's like there's all this tension going on in Paul's language. And you can hear it and you can feel it. And I wonder, do you, do you feel that same tension inside of you as you look at life, as you look at all the, the training and correction that continues to come in our direction? Here's Paul in a Roman prison, uncertain about the outcome of his life. Most likely he's going to be, he's going to be executed. And he says, listen, I'd rather be with Christ. I'd rather be with Christ. I, I mean, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's like bonus for me. But as long as I'm here, this is good. This is necessary. And the fact that I'm here, and I, and I think it's necessary that I remain with you, I'm going to continue pouring myself out so that you can grow and progress in your faith and your trust. And I'm here to continue to crush those clauses that are attached to your all-in status. And I'm firmly committed to your growth. I'm all in with that. Even if they lock me up in a Roman prison, I'm still going to write and I'm still going to come and I'm still going to encourage you. And what I love about Paul's posture here is that there's no denial going on. There's no pushing down of the feelings. There's that, you know what? It would be amazing. It would be amazing to no longer have to wake up with a broken heart yet again. I mean, I, I don't know how much more of a broken heart I can take. And yet here's Paul. I will continue to rejoice and put on the whole mind of Christ, like the whole thing, all of it. And not just the parts that I like, but I'm going to put all of it on. And here's Jesus inviting Peter. Peter, put on the mind and the concerns of God. Your concerns are human. They're human oriented. This whole idea of making yourself great and getting to the top and putting Israel back into a position of power. Those are human concerns. I, I'm asking you to put on the mind and the concerns of God and to say to anything that would get in the, in the, as an obstacle in what God loves and what God is concerned about, say no to that. And Paul is reminding us here in Philippians and reminding those of us who are reading this letter thousands of years later, listen, we have no control. However, my expectations are deeply rooted in resurrection because resurrection is always coming. That somehow, even in this, resurrection is coming. And as long as we're together, I'm, I'm committed to you. I'm committed to you I'm continuing to progress and, and form. And I want to see a, a deeper joy in you, a faith, more and more and more trust, more risk, more openness, more of like, you know what? We're, we're done. We're done playing the game. We're done playing it safe. And that we get to say yes to every day. We get to say yes even to the difficult parts, the hard stuff in life. That, okay, what is God up to in this? And we get to say to ourselves and to our community, get behind me, half-heartedness. Or how about this? Get behind us, 
sacred cows and beliefs that we've been holding on to for years that aren't working anymore except for a select few? Just so we can stay safe and comfortable? I mean, really? Is that what we signed up for? Or how about this? Get behind us, holy huddles, rooted in our so-called right beliefs that continue to keep the bad and the messy and the complicated people out because they're not like us, and they continue to keep the good people in because we want safety and security. We want to know what's ahead. Get behind us, Jesus communities, where we are only drawing in people who are like us, who think like us, look like us, act like us, vote like us. Get behind us, half-heartedness, because we get to put on the whole mind of Christ. We get to fully step into the Christ pattern of thinking, acting, and feeling. I want to leave you with a few questions. What's keeping you from saying yes? Yes to the Christ pattern. Have you been able to identify where the I'm all in as long in, as long as is operating deep down in your belief system headquarters? Are my traditions, my right beliefs, my view of reality more important than Christ himself? What makes you think the world is the way you see it?